You can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. That's on page 1038 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Isn't it so great to sing praises to the Lord? So good. I could sing that song forever. So we're taking a break from the the book of Judges. Uh, Next week, we're going to summarize the rest of the book. But um, this week, we're going to take a look at one of Jesus' parables. Um, So just by way of introduction, I think all of us know what happened last Monday. We experienced a very rare event, a solar eclipse crossed the full length of the continental United States. And the last time that anything like that happened, that it traveled from coast to coast, was 1918. So, true confession, the church staff might have watched this upstairs on the roof. (laughs) But we kind of missed it as it went by. Um, So if you were like us and you missed it, don't worry, because the next one will be in April 2024, and the path will cross just north of us in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. So we got seven years till the next one. Um, so, like, if you were like me, you learned what a solar eclipse was this week. Um, so, a solar eclipse happens when the course of the moon passes in front of the sun, and you got the beautiful totality of the sun, the sun's outline just shining through the moon. And uh, when, when it actually is in full totality, you can look at the sun without any weird eyeglasses or a cereal box with a hole in it or whatever contraption you tried to use last Monday. And we were all reminded that we can't look straight into the sun. We all remembered this. So I would propose to you that when we read scripture, we should think of a solar eclipse. Let me explain. So when we read the Bible... Every passage in Scripture should be read with the gospel in view. And as we see a passage, we need to put the passage in view of the gospel so that the gospel can shine its light through that passage for us. So if you're just entering your faith journey and you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. Let me encourage you to look to Jesus this morning. Look to his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. This is what constitutes, for us Christians, the good news of the gospel message. So we can see the gospel in every text in Scripture. Now, sometimes, like we're going through the book of Judges, you picture the gospels right here, and we're trying to get the passage in view of the gospel. Judges is like all the way over here. But we can find a way, we can find a path to put it in front of the gospel truth and the gospel light. So as we turn to Luke chapter 18 this morning, we have to keep our eyes and keep our mind on the gospel of Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead for our justification by faith in God. So would you read with me Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. God's word says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it speaks to us, that it's true, that it's real, and Lord, that it, it actually matters to our lives. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would show us great things from your word, that you would uh, show us the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus, and Lord, how we're to live in light of it. We pray that you'd be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this text is going to show us two themes. So if you're taking notes, you can write them down. Two simple themes. The first thing is that there's two responses to God. And the second theme is that there's two results of those responses. So we see in verse 9, the whole purpose of why Jesus is giving us this parable. Verse 9 says that the audience were those who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everybody else. So Jesus tells this parable. So Jesus is speaking to people who are confident in their own righteousness and who look down on everyone else. And this is a problem. It's a big problem. But it's a problem that's not easy to diagnose. Here's why. It's an issue of the heart. This problem is an internal matter that only you can diagnose for yourself. It's not your place to diagnose someone else. So this morning, don't look for the Pharisees around you. Look for the Pharisee within you. So Jesus gives this parable as a way to expose a problem in the people who were following him. So throughout the ministry of Jesus, he consistently speaks to the heart. Jesus knows the motives of men, he knows their hearts, he knows their intentions, and he speaks right to it. And he speaks it with truth. The heart, our hearts, my heart, is often misunderstood. Because when we hear the word heart, sometimes we either think of our actual heart that's beating in our chest, or we think of it in terms of emotions. When the Bible refers to the heart, it does include our emotions, but it includes so much more. The Bible says that our actions come from the heart, that our thoughts come from the heart. So Jesus is speaking this parable to people who in their thoughts and in their heart were confident of their own righteousness. And out of that belief in their heart, they... They reacted with looking down on other people with contempt. So the parable shows us two characters. And those two characters have two very different responses to God. And so verse 10 shows us that there's two men that are walking up to the temple to pray. So they're going to the temple. The temple at that time was like the hub 
of activity in Jerusalem. So this was the religious, political, and economic center of Israel. It was the place of Israelite worship and Israelite prayer. And the temple, in and of itself, was a place that was designed, in some ways, to separate people into groups. So you have the Jews and the Gentiles separated. You have men and women separated. You have priests and non-priests separated. Clean and unclean who are separated. And then Jesus shows us these two characters. They're on their way up to the temple, and don't you think these guys are going to be separated and going to be very different? And these characters, they are incredibly different, and they're used perfectly by Jesus to speak to the issue at hand of people being confident in themselves and people looking down on others. So Jesus uses these characters. So the first one that we see is the Pharisee. The Pharisee is an influential, intelligent, and respected person in Jewish society. The Pharisees, they're like recurring characters in the ministry of Jesus. So if there was like a soundtrack for Jesus' ministry, when the Pharisees show up, it's like, dun-dun-dun, you know? Because the Pharisees are guys who are constantly inspecting Jesus' faithfulness to the law and his different interpretations of the law. The Pharisees were the ones who viewed themselves as the godliest Jews in Israel. And they followed the law to a T. And they were the most religious people of the day. So you have the Pharisee being contrasted to the tax collector. The tax collector is the social outcast who is hated by the Jews in that day. Tax collectors, they were viewed as traitors because they, they worked for the Roman Empire who oppressed the, Jew, the Jews. And the job of the tax collector was to take money from the Jews and pay to the Roman Empire. So the Romans would offer a rate for each Jewish person But often, the tax collectors would inflate that rate so that they could take a cut for themselves. So tax collectors were despised in that day. They were the social outcast. They're viewed as robbers, as sinful people, as wicked men. And this is what Jesus does to set the scene for us. You have these two men walking up to the temple to go pray. And so in verse 11 and 12, we see the Pharisee is the first to approach God. So this is the first response to God. And he stands up to pray because that was the model of how to pray in Jerusalem in that day. And he's by himself so that he wouldn't be contaminated by the sinful people and the sinful people that are around him, like the robbers and evildoers and adulterers. And look at what he says in verse 11. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. So I don't want to immediately just like drop the hammer on the Pharisee. Um, that'll be for a minute. Um, some of the things that he says are actually pretty admirable. 
I mean, it's a good thing that he's not a robber. It's a good thing that he's not an evildoer. It's a good thing that he's faithful to his wife. It's a good thing that he intentionally fasts and gives a portion of his income to the Lord. But there are two problems with the Pharisee. So the first problem isn't actually what he does, but it's the heart behind what he does. So the Pharisees, they're religious professionals who are always concerned with presenting themselves as righteous. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's standing in the middle of the temple, standing so that people could see him, making sure that that what he says is eloquent and true. But he's actually doing good and moral things, outwardly, but inwardly we can see that The heart motives are wrong. In his heart, Jesus tells us that he's trusting in himself and trusting in his religious performance. So for the Pharisee, his religious activities, they were his greatest treasure. That's what he cared about the most. And he is rejoicing in his status as religious. And as he's doing that, he's also looking down on the people who are not You are not like me, you robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. And so his heart is in the wrong place. He's placing himself above other people. And Jesus, he always addresses the heart in many of his teachings. So quickly, let's flip back to Luke chapter 12. Just throughout the book of Luke, we see Jesus addressing the heart. Luke chapter 12 Verse 34, just a few pages back. Luke 12, 34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can see that this Pharisee, his treasure was his religious performance. And his heart is tied to that. And that's why he's able to look down on other people with contempt. Flip back even further to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Luke 6, 45 says, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So it's easy for us in our passage to diagnose the heart of the Pharisee because his words reveal his heart. His words saying that he's, he's thanking God that he's better than other people and he's trusting in his own actions, in what he does. And that reveals a heart that is not trusting in God. So the heart, for us, the heart is the center of a person's attention and devotion. So clearly, for the Pharisee, the center of his attention and devotion was his religious performance and how he came off to other people. That's what his heart was attached to. It's easy to diagnose the Pharisee, but a lot harder to diagnose our own hearts. So what's at the center of our attention and devotion? That's where you'll find your heart's greatest treasure. 
And here's the thing. Our treasures can be anything, even good things. So let me ask a couple of questions to help you maybe diagnose. What would make your life a success? What gives your life significance more than anything else? So in your mind, you probably just thought of a couple really good things. But those things, they can't take first. God has to. And the, here, the, the thing is, sometimes those things do take first place in our hearts, and we might not even notice because our hearts are, are deceitful above all else. Who can understand it is what the prophet Jeremiah says. So this makes work on our hearts so difficult because our hearts can lie to us. So it's important for us to analyze our hearts because God looks at them. God looks at our hearts. And the heart is the most important thing about us. I mean, the main goal for the Christian life is not merely obedience. It's heart change. And this heart change happens initially when God, through his amazing grace, gives us new spiritual life and a new heart that loves Jesus And this heart change, that heart change happens instantly, but as we live a life of faith, we must continue to keep our hearts free from other things that can easily enter in and take root in our hearts. Our heart is ordered by what we love the most. So what might you love more than God? It's likely a good thing, but if it's in the place of God, that's a problem. So let me give a couple examples of this. Put some flesh on it. Um, I love my wife. She's the best. She's such a blessing to me. I love my job. I love that I get to speak to people about Jesus and walk with them through seasons of life. I love my family. I love my friends. I love fellowship. I love hanging out and eating food together, obviously. I love my sports teams. I won't talk about my football team. I'll talk about my basketball team because you guys will like them, the Celtics. But I, I might love my sports teams a little too much. But those are all good things. They're all great things. But if they occupy the center of my attention and the, and the devotion in my heart before God, that's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. God must be at the center of our hearts and then everything else will fall in line. So for me, it's my relationship with God, wife, family, job, and then everything else. The Pharisee got this wrong because he's putting his religious activity before God as the primary motivation and place in his heart. So the second problem with the Pharisee is that he has the complete wrong standard for goodness. It's completely off. We read the passage and we see the Pharisee thanking God that he's not like other men. And the first place that he goes is to robbers. It's like, great job, Pharisee. You're not a robber. Let's give you an award. But we see that he's trusting in his own ability to be good and to be righteous. And that's, that's a common assertion that a lot of us might have. 
Like if we were to take a poll of every person living in Hingham, they would, they would probably say, the majority of them would say that they are good. And if we were to ask the reason for them being good, they would probably say that their goodness is based on what they do. But that's, that's the wrong perspective. I mean, obviously, if we compare our righteousness to another person, we're going to be able to find someone who's worse than us, right? I mean, people always somehow find the guy that's like punching kittens, and they're like, at least I'm not that guy. And that's a problem. Because the people that we think that we're better than, we treat with contempt, and we look down on them, just like the Pharisee did. But if we compare ourselves to God, the holy God, the infinite creator of the universe, in his perfection and holiness, we are not able to stand up on our own goodness. It doesn't even come close. And so we see the Pharisee has the wrong standard. We see that, he, that he's thinking that his own goodness will merit him favor before God. And the question for us to ask is, are we like that? Are we really looking away from the good and the good things that we do? Are we looking away from those things? Because when we stand before the holy God, the judge of the universe, what are you going to look to and trust in? Because God's standard is different than ours. And we don't come close to standing up to it. I mean, we have, we have the ability to be the worst of sinners. It's there in us. It's easy to look at the Pharisee and say, oh man, he's just missing the point. But we are as bad as he is. Which is why we need Jesus. And we need his perfect life. So we can look to, the G- to Jesus, we can look to his gospel, and we can see our need for our Savior shining through this passage. Just like the solar eclipse, do you see it? Do you see the need for Christ? And as we look to verse 13, we see that the tax collector, he's going to respond the right way before God. So the first response of the Pharisee, wrong. The second response, which we're about to look into, is the right response. So look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says, The tax collector stood at a distance... He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So we have the Pharisee who's standing in the middle of the temple, in the hustle and bustle of the temple, so that everyone could see him, is contrasted to the tax collector who's standing far off and who can't even look up to heaven because of the shame of his sin. He beats his breast as a sign of sadness and mourning because of his sin, and he pleads with God to be merciful to him. This is the right response. But what makes this the right response? It's a heart thing. The tax collector is looking away from his actions and looking to God. And as a result, God declared him righteous. The tax collector isn't boasting to God like the Pharisee did about his religious behavior, but he's pleading with God to have mercy on him. 
because he's a sinner. He's aware of his sinfulness. He knows that he needs God's mercy and that there's nothing within him to produce any amount of righteousness. The tax collector knew that righteousness comes from God, not from what we do. But his plea for mercy is a very unique request. So it's one that we've actually never seen before in any of Jesus' other teachings and parables. It's a word that's typically used by the high priest on the Day of Atonement in Israel. So the Day of Atonement is the day where the Israelite priests and people would gather together to offer sacrifices to God for their sins. And the tax collector is asking God to make atonement for him, to forgive him of his sins so that he can be reconciled to God. He knew he needed this mercy. And mercy is is not getting what we deserve. The tax collector knows what he deserves. He deserves punishment and judgment for his sins. And so he's asking God to be merciful to him. And in that mercy, it's not getting what we deserve. So the, the only other time that this word is used is actually in the book of Hebrews, where it refers to Jesus fulfilling the task of the high priest by atoning for the sin of the people in the Holy of Holies at the temple. And Jesus intentionally puts this word in the mouth of a social outcast, despised tax collector. And he casts the tax collector, he puts the tax collector in the role of the Jewish high priest. This is scandalous. The social outcast, the hated traitor, is actually the one that Jesus highlights and lifts up and puts in a very unique place and says that we're, we're to imitate him, the tax collector. And so in this parable, it's the tax collector who's actually the one who understands how to approach God and not the religious professional. This is the the great reversal from what we would expect. But this is how God usually operates. I mean, think about everyone in this room. We were all spiritual outcasts. We didn't deserve anything. And Jesus was merciful to us. God looked upon us and saw a humble people that would that would he would make his own. And that's what this church is. It's a sign of God's mercy and a sign of God's grace because we were all spiritual outcasts. We didn't do anything to deserve any amount of grace from God. It was all from him. And so now we're one in Christ. So we see that that's the right response. So final thing that we'll see is the result, the two results of these responses. And we see it in verse 14. So read with me verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, The beautiful twist, the great reversal in this story is that the social outcast, the tax collector, is the one who's accepted before God. 
And so here's the final result of these two responses. Uh, We see that our characters are very different, very unique, obviously. The Pharisee is the one who's confident in his own righteousness. And look at where he is at the end of the story. He's the other rather than the other. Isn't that a scary little phrase? The other does not receive mercy. The other is not justified. He's actually condemned. The hopeless tax collector who was dismissed by the Pharisee is the one who's highlighted by Jesus and justified before him. So this verse uh, tells us uh, about justification and being justified. So I know that some of you might have just heard that word and partially fell asleep. So let me just quickly give an explanation for you. Let me break it down. Justification is uh, it's a wonderful word when we understand it. So let me explain. God is holy. He deserves justice. And since we are sinners who continue to sin, there's a day coming where we will stand in God's courtroom of justice. So imagine a courtroom. And it seems like all that we deserve is the bang of the gavel and for God to declare us guilty before him. Because we are guilty. We've sinned against the holy God. We've sinned against the judge. We've committed cosmic treason. We are guilty and we deserve it. And God doesn't owe us anything. He won't overlook sin because if God overlooks sin, that would be against his character. And so all that we can really expect is that God would declare us guilty before him to be sentenced to an eternity away from him. God doesn't owe us anything. But thankfully, God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love, and he will forgive us of our sins. So justification means that guilty sinners in God's courtroom of justice can be declared righteous and innocent before God by grace through faith because of the work of Jesus Christ. So picture that you're in the courtroom The judge not only forgives you of your sins, but pays the penalty himself. And that's what Jesus did for us when he took our place on the cross. He provided justification to happen for us, for all of us, for all of you. No matter what your past has been, Jesus can forgive by his grace. And in this parable... It's the tax collector rather than the Pharisee that receives mercy and is declared righteous. The Pharisee is the righteous one who thanks God for his righteousness, but he's not justified and he's condemned. And here's why he's condemned. The Pharisee doesn't ask God for anything. Think about it. Look at what he said again. He doesn't ask God for anything. He's just boasting, saying, God, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. He didn't ask God for anything, so he doesn't receive anything. He wasn't praying, so it shows us a powerful truth. 
Religious activity doesn't save us. Because when we stand before God, our outward appearances, they don't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the school we go to, the money we make, the job that we have, the power that we might possess, it doesn't make any difference when we stand before the holy God of the universe because it'll be our hearts that are evaluated. So this parable is a parable of contrasts. And the biggest contrast I, I, I think, I see, the biggest difference is the heart of the tax collector and the heart of the Pharisee. The Pharisee's heart is full of pride and self-righteousness compared to the humble faith of the tax collector. So how can we get this kind of humble faith? What does it even look like for us? So I came across uh, the life and ministry of a a former missionary named C.T. Studd. So aside from having an awesome last name, he's known for being a 19th century missionary to China. China, India, and parts of Africa. But he wasn't immediately born with this incredible faith and this strong faith or this humble faith. Um, he, he was an athlete. He played cricket. No, I didn't say he played with crickets. I mean, he played cricket like the sport that they play on that island over there. At Cambridge University, he played cricket. And he was easily one of the best players on the team. He was a captain. He was, you know, you can look it up. It's, it's there in the history books. He's one of the best players on the team. But he knew that his faith wasn't where it needed to be. So Stud was confronted with this question, and he wrote it in one of his uh, books and biographies. He said, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? So his response was to say, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. So from that moment, he began to reach out to fellow students at Cambridge University, and the Lord was doing great work through him. By God's providence, he connected with Hudson Taylor, who was the director at the time of the China Inland Mission, and he was brought on staff. Within a few weeks, there were six other men that joined him uh, to form the Cambridge Seven. This is a group of missionaries that went to China to preach the gospel where it had never gone before. So this man's simple, humble faith, it can be explained by one sentence. Let me just give one more quote. One more sentence. It says, If Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Say that again. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So this example of simple, humble, God-glorifying faith should encourage, encourage us greatly. Because this kind of faith can be ours. We don't have to look at that missionary and say, oh, I'll never be like that. 
we can look at this missionary and say, yes, I want to follow his example. Just like the Apostle Paul would said, said, imitate me as I follow Christ. So we can all have this kind of humble, genuine, and simple faith. Because if Jesus really is God and died for me, then we should be able to make any sacrifice for his glory. So we can have this kind of faith. And think about it. If, if this church had humble faith like this and we were all mobilized for ministry and gospel work, imagine what the South Shore and the world would look like. And here's how we can have it. We ask for it. Look at the tax collector. He asked for it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is how God gives us this humble faith. He asks for it, and he gets it. And he's justified before God. So if we ask for humble faith, God will surely give it to us because he's gracious and merciful. And so Jesus, as we come to a close of our passage, he shows us an incredible principle in this parable. And it's summarized in the last little sentence. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. The self-righteous and proud Pharisee will be humbled before God, while the humble tax collector will be exalted before God. And this, this pattern of of the exaltation of humble people is throughout Scripture. We read it in 1 Peter 5. We read it this morning. And there's a bunch of other places where we see that pattern. It follows the pattern of the life of Christ. So turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see this pattern. The humble being exalted. We see it in the life of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every knee, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God who humbled himself He didn't try to grasp divinity because he already had it. He emptied himself. He became obedient. He became a man. And he was put to public shame, rejection, and mocking. He obeyed God to the point of death on the cross in order to provide a justification for humble sinners who acknowledge their need for a Savior. The tax collector knew his need for mercy. And the beauty of Christ is that salvation is available to humble people who acknowledge their need for God. A humble person is modest in their assessment of themselves. The Pharisee was proud and he couldn't see it. 
The tax collector was humble and he saw his need for mercy. So in Christ, we are justified. And one day, we will be exalted. We will be exalted with Christ, with Jesus in glory. We will follow Christ. The humble will be exalted just as Christ was exalted to the highest places. So also we will be exalted one day when we enter into our eternal home with Jesus. So this week, if you're feeling inadequate or insecure about your position in Christ or anxious about something that you have to do, remember this amazing truth that one day you will be with Jesus in glory and let that give you hope. Let that give you confidence. We live in a world full of hopeless people who are living for themselves. But if you trust in Jesus, there's a new hope and a new life that occupies our heart. Because it shows us that we aren't the center of the story anymore. Jesus is. And it's incredible to marvel at this truth of the gospel. How could all of this even happen? And I think of that song that we sang. Who else could rescue us from our failing? Who else could offer his only son? Who else invites us to call him father? Only a holy God. Only our holy God. So the gospel is like that solar eclipse. And when we see the beauty of God's grace in Christ through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, we only see it partially because we're on this side of eternity. We see God with glasses that show him to be like a dimly lit mirror so that we can comprehend him. Just like the solar eclipse, we needed those silly glasses and that cereal box so that we could see the eclipse, but we could only see a little bit. The Bible tells us that one day, we will have the ability to see God as he truly is in all of his perfections, in all of his glories, in the fullness of who he is. And we'll see the beauty of the gospel on display and we will praise God for the rest of eternity. And so until then, what do we do as brothers and sisters in Christ looking to our Savior? We look to him. We run the race with confidence that Christ is our author and perfecter of our faith. We trust him. We live for his glory. And we can be encouraged that God is present with us in any circumstance in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it teaches us about you. We thank you, God, that new life is possible, that justification is true and real for us. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We pray that you would uh, be present with us as as we enter into communion, and Lord, that you'd be glorified this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.